0: Well, good morning. My name is, (laughs) um, I'll pay you later, Shana. Uh, We are um, continuing our series this morning in Genesis. My name is Julie Coleman, and I am part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel, and we'll be doing Genesis uh, 32 this morning. So we've been covering the life of of Jacob in this part of our series between January and February. Uh, Last week, Steve took us through um, Jacob's time away from his homeland in the country of his uh, uncle Laban, who turned into his father-in-law Laban. Um, He got married, he had children, he um, increased flocks and things like that. Um, God was with him the whole time. He actually had to sneak out um, to leave the land because his in-laws had become very hostile toward him. And um, he told his wives this, I see your father's attitude, that it is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. Then the angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Now, as he told this to his wives, they agreed with him that that was the right thing to do. Good thing, because the angel did tell him. And it, J, Jacob began the journey home. Now, going home for Jacob was a very scary proposition. Usually when we think of going home, we have warm feelings and we're excited to be there with our family and, and, um, and in familiar circumstances. Um, but it was not so with him. Because if you will remember, back to the beginning of his story that we covered a few weeks ago, that Jacob had tricked his father into giving him the blessing that his father meant to give to his older brother Esau and Esau was so angry when that happened that he vowed to kill his brother and he wasn't kidding and his mother knew it so his mother sent him away but this is what what she did she said go away for a few days for a few days Jacob and once his brother's anger subsided she would send for him she never did which means only one thing. Esau was still planning to kill his brother when he saw him again. So kind of scary place to go home. It had been, since he left, 20 years. 20 years of living in a strange land, 20 years of living with a relative who was not out for his good, (laughs) to say the least. 20 years of living with the memory and the guilt of that memory, deceiving his father and cheating his brother. And I would guess 20 years, he dreamed of going home. But knowing if he did, he would likely be killed. Well, now God has told him, go home. They got as far as the Jabbok River, which is where this sto- week's story begins. Now, I noticed that this, uh, the circumstances of this account is very similar to the account of his last journey. If you remember... Um, he started out leaving home because of his brother's rage, so uh, he couldn't go back because he was wanted to murder him, and it was hard for him to go forward at that point because he was going to a relative he'd never met and wasn't real sure about his reception. Now, here he is, all these years later, returning home, and Laban is leaving. Uh, Laban is angry at Jacob's success and his secret exit. He actually follows him out seven days worth of journey to catch him again. And so he's got this anger behind him, just like before. And this time, he's all—he's going forward to a brother that's determined to kill him, as far as he knew. So you see how they're kind of alike? And God responded to the circumstances in the exact same way. The last time, God gave Jacob a vision of the stair, of stairway and the angels going between heaven and heaven. And, earth. and it was a reassurance that he was involved with what was going on. Heaven was involved with what was happening on earth. Well, now, these 20, year late, these 20 years later, as jo- Jacob travels in the opposite direction toward home, he's given another glimpse of the eternal, another reassuring vision from God. And this is what it says in Genesis 32. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Machinayim. And I, I'm, that's how it said it was pronounced on Bible.org, so we'll just assume that. Okay. <laughs> so what was God showing him at that time, this, this place where the angels were there? Well, the words camp of God can also be translated great army of God. You know, God showed another person his armies in real life. In Second Kings chapter 6, Elisha's servant, I mentioned a few weeks ago, was surrounded by the enemy, and, and he was terrified, and so Elisha prayed that he could see. And when he looked out after that prayer, blazing chariots of, and horses surrounding the enemy up on the mountain. I wonder, was that what Jacob saw at the camp? I'm pretty sure it was, because he names the place Machanaim, which means two camps, one human camp and one from heaven two camps. And after spending time organizing that uh, entourage for crossing the ford of Jabbok, uh, Jacob responds to God's vision in a prayer to that heavenly escort. this is what he says. O God God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only, I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two companies. So he went with the shirt on his back, and he's coming home a rich man. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children, For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be outnumbered, too great to be numbered, excuse me. Let's pray before we go any further. Lord, we ask your help in understanding this passage about Jacob wrestling with God. It's a hard passage, Lord. You know I struggled all week with it, and I thank you, God, for the beautiful truths that uh, you pointed out to me. And I just pray, Lord, that you would get me out of the way so that you can give these same truths to the people who are sitting here. Use this, God, to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we can go any further on here, the tone of this prayer, doesn't it strike you here? It does me, especially knowing what Jacob was 20 years ago. He had been a guy who knew what he wanted and did what it took to get it, immoral or moral. The guy who cared more about what he wanted than the relationships that were most dear to him. Some people call him the deceiver. I think I would have called him the grasper. Reaching out, grabbing, and taking what was his because you take what you want because no one's going to give it to you, no matter what the cost. That was the Jacob of before. Then God met Jacob those 20 years ago as he fled the camp, and he uh, he met him there. He promised to him, Those three things that we talked about. I will be with you and keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. Jacob walked out of the promised land knowing God was by his side, and he lived a life in a foreign country seeing the whole time that God had his back. God was providing in his helplessness. God was proving him faithful. And it was obvious to anyone who was there, if you look at... Uh, what what um, other people's responses to things that happened in those chapters. Jacob, Laban, and even Jacob's wives. So Jacob's prayer, the one we just read, um, reflected his understanding of God. That God was Jacob's personal God. Not just the God of his fathers. And that kindness and faithfulness that God had shown was not because Jacob was a good guy, it's actually the opposite. He appeals to God in humility, not because he's earned it, but because God is faithful and kind. Even the words he dis- uses to describe God um, has said kindness relates to a superior who, out of kindness, meets the needs of someone who cannot help himself. So his very word shows Jacob's helplessness and God's uh, provision. And what he asks for was with an acknowledgment that it would be undeserved. It would be given because of grace. And Steve, I love that that's your word because it's mine too. I have great big letters on my kitchen wall to remind me every morning as I come downstairs that grace is all, all, the, all what we need to know. Um, so Jacob makes his, his request, and it's based on God's promises. You see here in this prayer that there is no need for Jacob to prove himself anymore there's no demands remember that grasper gone in his place stands a man who puts himself in god's hands and chooses to trust in his promises and his faithful character for the outcome of his life it's beautiful i love it but while jacob has come a long way god hasn't finished transforming him yet and so after jacob sends the rest of his uh, company across the river to the other side into the promised land. He settles in to spend the rest of the night alone. But he wasn't alone for long. So here's the next part. And this is the re- now it really starts to get interesting. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that Jacob had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Ouch. Then the man said, "'Let me go, for the dawn is breaking.' But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the man said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. The man said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But the man said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Isn't that an interesting story? When I saw I was going to be teaching this one, I said, uh-oh, because it's kind of a hard story to figure out. I've heard there's lots of people who have given some interesting, very interesting. I was reading Steve some of them this morning. We were like, what? Um, But interpretations of this. Um, But first, before we can go any further, before we get into the interpretation, we really have to ask the question, who is the man? Were you wondering that? Yeah. Well, it depends on who you read. (laughs) There's a couple of possibilities. First possibility is it was God, right? A theophany. Um, Theophany is something we see in the Old Testament from time to time. It's a direct visual manifestation of the presence of God. Things like the burning bush for Moses, or the pillar of cloud and fire over the tabernacle, or the Shekinah glory that dwelled in the Holy of Holies. The most common theophany is when God becomes a physical being described as an angel of the Lord. You've heard that before, I'm sure. Each, each instance is meant to convey some kind of revelation about God or truth. So, is this man confronting Joshua a theophany? Well, there's a couple reasons to believe that. First, he gives Jacob a new name. Now, it's presumably only God can do that. And so, because he sees and determines the future, and that's what his name was for, to do that. So, very possible it's God. Jacob says that he has seen God face to face. Again, Jacob thinks it's God, so why shouldn't we? He possesses the power to dislocate a hip with just a touch. And he does not give his name, which is kind of weird. Why? It would, I think that at this point, he hasn't really named himself. He doesn't really name himself until he gets to um, Exodus, and he, Moses is standing at that burning bush, and Moses asks who you are, and he says, what? I am. I am. There you go. There's God's name. But he doesn't say it to Jacob yet. It's hundreds of years before Moses was going to be by that burning bush. So I wonder if it's just that Jacob wouldn't be able to take it in or understand what God was doing. I don't know. But all of these things might bring somebody to the conclusion that it was a theophany, it was God that uh, Jacob actually wrestled with. But there is another possibility. It was an angel. Uh, they have power. And they speak for God. They go in, they do God's bidding. They're messengers, um, they act on his behalf. And so um, it's very possible that it wasn't just an angel, not just God. Or not, not just God, not God, but just an angel. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, Genesis, this account, does not call him an angel of the Lord. So there's that. Also, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, messengers that are sent are treated like the person whose message they are delivering. So, for example, if a king was given a message, and it's all over a bunch of times in the Old Testament, then the king speaks to the messenger like he's, he's the other king who had sent the message to him. So that kind of uh, representation, where he actually becomes the person uh, that he's representing, um, there's that. Also, angels do have great power, and it seems like dislocating a hip wouldn't be out of the range of possibility for them. And angels are messengers, so informing Jacob of a name change could be merely the delivery of a message. Well, before I studied all this, and and, um, I was pretty sure I was going to be telling you that it was God in the flesh, even possibly Jesus, because that's who God in the flesh is. Um, But then this week, I found another reference to this account in the book of Hosea. And it says, in the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his, for his favor. So maybe it was an angel representing God after all. I was also, you know, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, you can decide for yourself. Um, I'm not ready to take a bullet for either possibility. <laughs> I think it's one of them, though. <laughs> but in any case... Either God or a representation from God confronts Jacob, and they end up in this wrestling match through the night. And at some point, it looks like Jacob is winning, and then that person, who he may be, touches Jacob's hip joint, bink, dislocates it, just like that. Now, having a hip joint dislocate to a wrestler is devastating. It would be like um, a quarterback losing his arm. Okay, Uh, it's so important to what he's trying to do. So with that dislocation, Jacob was unable to do anything offensively. So now he's helpless. So all he can do now is cling to his opponent in desperation, and while he does so, he begs for his blessing. He clings to him. He's not manipulating him or trying to, and he's acknowledging that without God's blessing, it was hopeless. Jacob was completely dependent on God. Okay, so I was puzzled at first that God, in light of the prayer that Jacob prayed, his dependence on God, his acknowledgment that God was the one working in his life, um, he 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 acknowledged. I came to over this land with nothing but a staff in my hand. Now I'm leaving in with all these possessions and people. Um, this large camp, all because God had been loving and faithful in spite of his worthiness. He gets it, right? I looked at this prayer and I thought, he gets it. Why is God wrestling with him? Hasn't he already got it down cold? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at the location of the wrestling match. So I've got a map for you here. I'll give you a quick uh, geography lesson. So he came from up here somewhere in Haran, probably more like up here, (laughs) But anyway, you can see, just to get your bearings, this is the Jordan River, this is the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea. Here's where Jerusalem eventually would be. It was Salem at that time. And down here in this area is Beersheba, where Jacob was raised. It's where Isaac made his home, and Jacob was raised there. And so um, and, and so that's where he is. Now, the Jabbok River is right here. So he has come from Haran up here, down this way, and now he's... he's uh, He is crossing over at the river. He's about to enter the promised land. He is about 40 miles from home. He's almost there. So why would it be here that God would stop him? He's already been traveling for many days and confront him. Why here? Well, I think it's because he was about to enter his home turf. Now just hear me out. Entering home, going home, could have bad repercussions because it does, I'm sure for some of you, and for, for me it did. I, I was raised in a lovely home and had great parents, but I had these roles I would fall into when I'd go home. And it was a lot of it wasn't positive. One thing I would do was I would expect my mother to take care of me because she was the mom and I was the kid. Now, I had four children of my own, and I did quite well taking care of them when I was down in Maryland. But as soon as I entered that Connecticut house, it was over. <laughs> Mom! I mean, I just turned into this kid again. Another thing I did was the, uh, the idea of trying to please my parents. And I would slip right back into it. And Steve would go, what are you doing? Like, who are you? Um, one thing that uh, I would always be telling stories to my dad to try to make him laugh. My dad had the best laugh in the world. And to show him the things I was accomplishing, I really wanted him to respect and be proud of me. And with my mom, it was all about how I dressed. Now, you have to remember, back in those days, I had four small children, and so my basic attire was sweatpants and a T-shirt. And it was good if I even got out of my pajamas some days. And so, but um, with my mom, I knew that I had to, you know, look well, look good. And so one, one time we were up there, and we were about to go to the mall. My sister, we were waiting for my sister to come over. And so I went in, I took off my sweatpants and I put on a pair of jeans and a decent shirt and fixed my hair, put on makeup because I wanted her to be proud of me. It was a thing I had. So I walked back out and she was waiting in the living room. My sister was coming up the driveway and she said, oh, I said, I said oh, is Margie here? And she said, yeah, what are you going to wear to the mall? <laughs> I looked down and said, oh. I guess not this. (laughs) Now, my mother had earrings to match her bathing suit. So, (laughs) Poor woman. I obviously didn't resemble her in any way, shape, or form um, on those things. Um, I'm sure all my dressing sense comes from the other side of the family. But going home, the point is, can trigger behaviors in you that don't happen anywhere else. And we become the person that we thought we left behind. And I don't know if any of you have experienced that, but it was true for me for sure. And God knew that Jacob's behavior, what his tendencies were, his behavior in his youth was one for struggling for significance within the family, manipulating people to get what he wanted. Now, 20 years later, he had learned to depend on God and wait on him to do as he promised, but I think it's likely that God saw ahead And he knew while Jacob was in the right frame of mind at the moment, but once he got back home, the place of his youth, he would soon forget and revert back to the schemer, the manipulator that he was 20 years ago. Why did Jacob feel all this pressure to manipulate? Well, I think it's this. Jacob grew up hearing God's promise to his mother. He was his mother's favorite, so you betcha she told him about it. And what was the promise? Two nations are in your womb, he told Rebekah, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God's plan always was that Jacob would take the lead. And I think that Jacob and all his manipulation back then, this is what I think. I think he was helping God to accomplish that purpose. He was helping God. He was making God's plans come true. Now, such a notion is pretty foolish at best. kind of reminds me of Peter. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers were coming to arrest him and uh, this big trauma thing was happening and Peter whipped out a sword and he's wielding it around and he says, you know, stand back, God, I'll save you. You think, Peter, God doesn't need saving. (laughs) Jacob needed that constant reminder as he returned home that doing anything in his own strength would be insufficient. It would always be insufficient. So God had Jacob wrestle with him. He gave him a chance to give it his best shot to prove himself stronger than God. He even let Jacob think he was winning at one point until finally he touched the hip and all those ideas disappeared because there's no match for the power of God And any illusions that Jacob might have had that God needed help were going to be gone forever after this match was over. In that wrestling match, under the moonlight that night, Jacob learned a lifetime lesson. And he bore a physical uh, reminder of that reality because he would remember from that moment on, every time he took a step, that whatever he was tempted to try to prevail, he even used his very best moves, that could never stand up to the power of God and what he could do. Doing anything in his own strength would be insufficient. He needed God, and he needed to depend on him always. So then what does he do? He begs for the blessing. 20 years ago, he took the blessing. Now in helplessness he pleads with god to give it to him good job buddy we cheer jacob on because now he's got the idea okay so then it comes the question so what how should jacob's story affect my life today you know i think sadly that we're no different than jacob it is a human tendency to try to do things in the flesh even spiritual things We see an opportunity and we go after it with gusto. We're going to make things happen. Isn't God lucky to have us? Right? But God doesn't want us operating in our own strength. He wants to always, always have us depend on him. Why? Because it's for his glory, not ours. Jesus told his disciples the same idea. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, a long time ago, Steve and I attended a church. It was kind of a new concept church at the time. One of those seeker-sensitive-driven places that were so big in the 80s and early 90s. And um, we started going there and we watched for a while what the leadership was doing in the church. And this is what we saw. Everything that we did, every program that was run, every marketing effort that was done was driven by the idea of drawing in the seekers. The leadership researched what attracts the seekers. They attended Willow Creek conferences and seminars and they met with successful church planners whose congregations were in the thousands. They were willing to follow any trend so they could make the church grow. They even, when we first got there, had a telephone survey. They called thousands of people, this big team of people, to determine a new name for the church that might inspire people to come and look at it. Well, they did accomplish those immediate goals. Um, The church definitely grew in numbers, but that was about the only growth that was happening in that place. My friend described the church. She said, it's like a party, and we're all out on the front porch, and we're all calling, come in, come in, and inviting them in, and they're so excited. They see this great thing happening, and they walk through the door, and the whole thing was just a facade, and they're uh, standing in the middle of nothing, nothing of substance. And, uh, you know, we, we wondered, why were we so anxious to get all these people in the door if we had nothing to offer them? That's what happens when you build without the Lord, when you're doing it on your own strength. God might not come down to physically rescue us or wrestle us. I I, I hope he doesn't. (laughs) Or even send an angel. But he is faithful to remind us that we are not to rely on our own strength. Even the great apostle Paul wrote, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, believing in his own strength, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of, God, of Christ may dwell in me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God gave Paul another kind of disjointed hip. Why? To remind him to rein himself in and wait and rely on God. So God does this for us on individual and corporate levels. In our personal relationship with him, we can look at the weaknesses and the imperfections that we have and know that God is going to use those like a disjointed hip to remind us of our need for him and to keep us from becoming manipulators that we will try to work things to what we think is best. No matter who it might hurt or what the cost might be. He really is working to save us from ourselves. But there's also a corporate body effect because there's danger in neglecting to seek the Lord and follow him in a church. Um, Like what I explained to you a little bit earlier, what I experienced in an old church that we were at, Our human tendency is to scheme and to formulate strategies to make things happen. But as Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Anything of substance to be done in the church must be done in the power of the Lord. All of Jacob's scheming and manipulating, it did accomplish what God spoke to Rebekah. The younger did get the place of the firstborn and rule over him. But in the wake of the manipulation of what uh, Rebekah and her son did, there was a swath of destruction a mile long. Broken family relationships, anger, resentment that lasted for years and years and years. As the wrestling match began that night, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, God thought, okay, Jacob, You did it your way the first time. This time, I want you to do it my way. I want you to rest in my confidence. I want you to rest in my power and my faithfulness to get it done. In conclusion, we visited a church um, quite some time ago that had gone through a really big scandal with their pastor and all these horrible things that happened, and the pastor took half the church and left, and the other part of the congregation remained behind. And and, uh, it was very discouraging, and a lot of people left after that because it just wasn't, you know, a really fun, big church like they were used to. And so um, they were down to very few people in this church. Still had the building. But we went to visit one Sunday. Uh, We were looking for a new church. And so as we walked in the door, we noticed this giant banner that was stretched across the front of the church, and there was one word on it, brokenness, brokenness. So we asked people about it. What is that? (laughs) And we were told this. Um, It was the church's theme for that year. It was the thing they were going to be working on all year long. Well, Steve took one look at that sign, and he said to me, you know, God's brought this church down to fight and wait. But now, with this goal, he's going to take this church places. And you know what God did? Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When we recognize our weaknesses and our dependency on him, both as individuals and corporately as a body, we are in the best position to be used by God. So he works then to keep us humble, to remind us of that reality, because when we're weak, we are strong. Let's close. Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful story and how you worked in Jacob's life. You didn't leave him where he was, but you ensured for the future that he would always remember that your power was the one he needed to trust in and that he wouldn't go in his own strength. Lord, I just really pray that you would help all of us. First of all, as individuals, that we would never charge ahead um, wanting to do great things without first checking with you and really spending time in prayer looking for your guidance, and that you would guide us, Lord, in clear ways, that we would not make a misstep. Always, though, God, we want to acknowledge that anything good that happens in our lives is not because of our efforts, because of who you are and what you have done in us and for us. And, Lord, as a church, I pray the same thing, that, God, that as a body, we would not jump ahead and scheme and try to manipulate things to uh, make certain goals happen, but that we would be able to rest in you, that we would be serious about having our face turned toward you at all times, and that as a body that would unify us, and that in that, God, that you would use those things to uh, reflect yourself through us in the world. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that that's what it takes, and we are glad to have that burden off of our shoulders. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.